Doubt is something we all struggle with. God's word is full of verses that teach us what to do when we doubt. Today, what we'll be talking about, we're going to talk about assurance of salvation. Assurance of salvation. We don't need to be assured that we are good. We need to be assured that he is good. We need to be assured that when we placed our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, in that gift of salvation, it's not only going to heaven when we die. It's so much more than that. It's like when you're a little kid. How many of you, let's say at Christmas time or at birthday, usually Christmas time. I used to get in trouble for this. Confession time. You'd wrap up the Christmas presents, the parents would or whoever, and they'd put them under the tree. You couldn't do it too early because then you'd have too many, too much time to mess with them. They'd try to do it in just in like a couple of days so you could see maybe what was happening. But inevitably, you'd try to find the ones that had your name on it. And you'd try to guess what it was. That's half the fun. Now you try to guess just by looking at the package shape and trying to remember what your list was. For your, for your Christmas presents. But if mom wasn't looking, right, Miss Udi? <laughs> if mom wasn't looking, right, uh, you can never count on one of your siblings to be a good lookout, though, could you? Mom! <laughs> He's doing it again! <laughs> but you pick it up and you kind of, generally there wasn't a smell. Like if you had a present that smelled through the wrapper, there's probably, that's, that's just a little strange. Uh, that, that wasn't a good way to find a clue, but you'd shake it. Now, the noise that I would always listen for at a certain age, I'd always listen for Legos. They had a, I mean, yeah, honestly, you can't keep Legos from rattling. What was always incredible was when you received a gift, and it wasn't just one thing in the gift. It was a bunch of things. It was a package of something, kind of like Legos, but... You'd open up the package and it would be a whole package full of these wonderful things. That's what salvation is. It's not just one thing. It's not just accepting Christ and now you're going to heaven. That is certainly one of the things that's included in the gift of salvation. But we're going to go through what the Bible teaches about assurance of salvation. Is there any such proof of having been saved? Is there any way for me to know from God's word that I am saved? Does he give us any proofs? He does. But we have to remember it's not just one or two. It's a cluster of proofs. I remember when I was traveling, when I was uh, when we were missionaries in Nepal, you'd go on these long flights all the time. One particular flight I was flying by myself, hours and hours and hours on the airplane, hours and hours and hours in the airport waiting for the flight. And, of course, you always go and look in those little gift shops. I went into this gift shop. It had books and stuff, and I picked up this little purple book about body language. How many of you guys know what I'm talking about? Look, some of you, right? Body language. The definitive book on body language, I think is what it's called. It was big. It was like 400 pages, maybe more. And I'm like, oh, man, I am going to be an expert. I'm going to be able to read everybody's thoughts if I read this book. The problem is the book is 400 pages, and you can't remember it all. 
But one of the things that they said was just because someone's going like this and has their arms crossed doesn't necessarily mean they're closed off to the conversation. Right. Some people say if you're open to the conversation, then your arms can be open down by your sides, relaxed. Just because somebody is talking to you and their arms are closed doesn't necessarily mean it's just it. Maybe their arms are tired. Right. There's a lot of different reasons. And so what they said in this book was you have to look for clusters. It's not just one thing. It's a bunch of things. So if somebody's going like this and their feet are pointing towards the door and they're constantly looking around as you're trying to talk to them, that might be a pretty good indication they're not interested in carrying on this conversation for too much longer. Things like that. Clusters. We have to keep that in mind when we go through the assurance of salvation. Points of proof. Well, pastor, I know this person. We all know this person. We all know somebody. Maybe when we go through this list, we think, well, I, I'm not really sure. And um, what about this? We have to look at the list. Jesus gives us a list. The Bible says that at the mouth of two or three witnesses, let every word be established. It's not just one thing. It's, it's a bunch of things. And I think that if we're honest with ourselves and we're allowing the Lord Jesus Christ and his Holy Spirit to be honest with who we truly are in our hearts as we go through this list, we may not get through all of it, but we're going to go through three or four or five of them. We can see, oh, according to God's word, I'm definitely born again. And that can be sweet assurance. Why? Because those doubts of time, those times of doubt will come. There will be times, no matter how long you've been saved, whether it's doubting your salvation or just doubt in general. We have to remember there is the accuser of the brethren and Satan will come and he can give you, he can flick this little thought into your brain, hoping you'll catch it. Hoping that you'll catch it. You ever with your, with your friend, you'll ever just kind of like toss something to him real quick and see if they can react and catch it. The devil does that to us with thoughts. He just kind of flicks thoughts at us. He'll, 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 he'll give you a quick thought of, of, of lust. He'll give you a quick thought of doubt. He'll give you a quick thought of whatever it is. Hoping, and sometimes we catch it and we think, maybe I'm not. Maybe this isn't. Maybe whatever. Hoping that you'll catch it. We need to know what God's word says in those times of doubt. Let's look at a few verses together. First John three. Verse number 18 says, my little children, let us not love in word. Now, again, this is written by inspiration, the Holy Spirit, by the Apostle Paul. He's not calling them little children as in children, children, literal children. He's talking to them as a spiritual father or as a spiritual teacher teaches those who are immature in the faith. Right. So he's calling them children. My little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue. But indeed, and in truth. And hereby we know that we are of the truth. And shall assure our hearts before him. For, man, I love this verse. If our heart condemn us, God is greater than our heart. And knoweth all things. Beloved, if our heart condemn us not, then have we confidence toward God. Whatsoever we ask, 
we receive of him because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. Let's pray. We'll get into some of these. Father, we thank you so much for an opportunity to gather under the preaching of your word. Please help me as I speak. I pray, God, that you would speak through me. Forgive me of sin. Empty me of self. And I pray that you'd fill me with your spirit. God, I pray that you would give us assurance of our salvation. If there is someone here today that's not sure that they're saved, they have some doubts whether or not if they died, they would go to heaven, whether or not they've been truly forgiven. I pray that you would either give them assurance that they are saved because they are, or Father, give them clarity that they are lost, that they may be saved. I pray these, this lesson would be clear. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Some of these will mirror to some degree or another what we studied in the first hour, but under a little bit different heading because these are actually proofs or assurances of our salvation, not just a spiritual checklist of whether or not I am growing in Christ, but actual proofs. The first one is this, that you have verbally confessed Christ from a heart of faith, Trusting in Christ alone, that what Jesus did for you on the cross is sufficient for your forgiveness. You say, well, that's 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 pretty big title here. Let's go and let's look once again at Romans 10. Romans 10. And let's start just briefly in verse number one. Romans 10 and verse number one says, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. For I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. For they being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness. That is such a powerful statement. have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. The Apostle Paul here, by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is speaking to saved people. In verse 1 he says, brethren, this is writing to saved people, talking about the nation of Israel and how by and large, of course he was a Hebrew himself, right? Uh, so he had been saved. But by and large, the entire nation had not been saved. Why? They believed in the Messiah, did they not? They believed in Jehovah God, did they not? They certainly did. But the Bible here specifically says the reason why they had not been saved is because they had gone about to establish their own righteousness. So many people do not have assurance of their salvation simply because they're not saved. They have never submitted themselves to the righteousness of Christ. And we'll give an illustration here in just a moment that makes this more clear. You cannot just with the mind intellectually understand and accept 
that there is a God and be saved. It takes more than that. You cannot just say with the mind, I believe in that Jesus Christ was a historical person who died on the cross and rose from the dead. There has to be a moment where you place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross in the words found in verse number uh, two and three. Instead of crafting your own righteousness, I'm trying to be a good person. I'm trying to follow rules I've set up for myself, rules that the culture has set up for me, rules that maybe even Christianity has set up for me. I'm trying to be a good person. We are either in God's eyes thinking I'm going to heaven because I am trying to be a good person. Or we're saying I am completely rejecting my goodness. I'm no longer trying to be a good person to go to heaven. That's not sufficient. I am submitting myself, cooperating with, believing in only Jesus Christ and what he has done for me on the cross. And the fact of the matter is, is that many of the, of the Jewish people would not submit, according to these words, to the righteousness of God that was found in Jesus Christ. They would not believe on him for their salvation. Why? Because that means they would have to admit that they were not enough. That what they had done was not enough. That their uh, religious background was not enough. That their nationality was not enough. That their ethnicity, that their the rules that they kept their entire life, that it was not enough. There has to be a moment of humility where you say, I'm lost. I cannot save myself. If I had one million lifetimes, I could still not work hard enough and be good enough to go to heaven. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. One sin. How can any good thing that I do today cover up what I did yesterday when the penalty of that one thing is death? It's impossible. Someone may have committed a crime yesterday and they're standing before the judge and they're like, well, I did do that yesterday, but today I was good. So let me go free. Does it work that way? It shouldn't. It doesn't in the justice system. And it certainly doesn't in the justice system of God. Preachers have used an illustration of a man for many years. And I researched him a little bit. His name is Blondin. How many of you guys have heard of this guy? No? A couple of you. Oh, man, I can't wait. I get to tell you about this guy's incredible. True historical figure, French uh, tightrope walker. This is Niagara Falls, historical photo. Okay, History's most famous tightrope walker performed without any uh, safety nets the whole time. During the winter of 1858, a 34-year-old French acrobat known as Charles Blondin, that was actually a nickname because his hair was blonde, 
traveled to Niagara Falls hoping to become the first person to cross the, quote, boiling cataract. Noting the masses of ice and snow on either bank when the winter. He delayed the grand event until he would have better weather. He always worked without a net, believing that preparing for disaster only made one more likely to occur. A rope 1,300 feet long, two inches in diameter, made entirely of hemp, would be the sole thing separating him from the roiling waters below. Blondin also understood the appeal of the morbid to the masses and reveled when gamblers began to take bets on whether he would plunge to a watery death. Most of the smart money said, yes, he's, he's a dead man. On the morning of June 30th, 1859, about 25,000 thrill-seekers arrived by train and steamer and dispersed on the American or Canadian side of the falls. The latter said to have the better view. Amen. Both banks grew fairly black, is the quote, meaning so many people, swarms of spectators, among them statesmen, judges, clerics, amen, I would have gone, generals, members of Congress, capitalists, artists, newspaper editors, professors, salesmen, and hucksters. Vendors hawked everything from lemonade to whiskey. His manager's name was Henry Colcurd. He gave tours to the press explaining the logistics of what the great Blondin was about to attempt. Blondin announced subsequent crossings. After he went across, he, so when he, he, the copy and paste didn't work right. So that happens to us preachers sometimes, doesn't it? Yeah, amen. Um, he was wearing pink tights, I guess, to have everybody's attention. Uh, he was five foot five and he weighed 140 pounds and he had these little thin leather shoes on. And there was, uh, as you would expect, there was a little bit, there was a little bit of a drop in the rope and then it went back up. He got on the rope and began to test it out. He had a very large balancing pole, 26 feet long, weighed 50 pounds. And he very slowly starts going across. He crossed all the way to the Canadian side, then came back to the American side. The whole thing took him 23 minutes. People could not believe it. This guy suspended over Niagara Falls, crossing a rope, walking foot one foot in front of the other. But that wasn't enough for Blondin. He didn't want to do it just once. Of course, he's this was his life. Matter of fact, he kept on doing things like this at Niagara Falls for many, many years and even went around the, the uh, some of the world uh, doing feats like this. This was his job and he eventually died at uh, 74, not from a fall, actually. He died from uh, heart disease, I think. He announced subsequent crossings, promising that each would be more daring than the last. On July 15th, with President Fillmore in attendance, Blondin walked backward to Canada and returned to the United States pushing a wheelbarrow. 
Two weeks later, he somersaulted. It, it's crazy to even read this because it's like this can't be true. It was true. And backflipped his way across, occasionally pausing to dangle from the cable by one hand. Shortly after that, he made another crossing and after a brief rest, appeared on the Canadian end of the cable with Harry Colcord, his manager, clinging to his back. Now, this guy had, uh, it's recorded, he went back and forth across, I think, uh, one direction and then, so one and then two, 300 times in his lifetime. Blondin gave his manager the following instructions. Look up, Harry. That was his first name. You are no longer Colcord. You are Blondin. Until I clear this place, be a part of me, mind, body, and soul. If I sway, sway with me. Do not attempt to do any balancing yourself. If you do, we both will go to our death. There are so many times as Christians that we've accepted the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior. We have clung to his back. We have accepted him as our Savior. He is, He saved us. He's taking us to heaven. And yet for some reason, when it comes to living out the Christian life, we think we can do it ourselves. Do not attempt to do any balancing yourself. If you do, he, Jesus Christ, is, is, is going to be totally fine. He's obviously not a human being, and this is where the illustration breaks down. But so many Christians, their life is a wreck because we depend. He can save me, but then I can do the rest. We must cling more tightly to Christ and who he is and what he has done for us Every day of our lives to get across to the other side, to grow in grace and to be the one. The point I'm trying to make is that when we come to the assurances of salvation, the Bible teaches us over and over and over again, he is the one that gives us the assurance. We do not read the Bible and say, I know I'm saved. I know I'm saved. I know I'm saved. I know I'm saved. We, yes, we can go back to that moment. I was always so confused about this when I grew up in church. You have to go back to the time and the place you accepted the Lord Jesus Christ, and that's great. But for some people, they don't remember exactly. Yes, they have trusted Christ as their Savior 100%. They don't know the exact calendar date. They may not know the exact age that they were. They might remember the, the kind of time of life, or they were 8, 9, 10, or, or, or 30, 31, 32. Assurance, yes, we can go back to the time to the place, but my friends, assurance, according to the Bible, comes back to he is the one that gives us the assurance. When we begin to lose the assurance of our salvation, it's because we are not clinging tightly. We're trying to do it on our own. Why are we trying to cross Niagara Falls on our own? Leave it to the expert. By the way, I can't believe this guy did that. That's just cool. How many times would a guy have to go back and forth on a tightrope over Niagara Falls 
before you would say, yeah, I'll climb on your back. I'm honestly probably never. And I'm a thrill seeker kind of a guy. I love, I mean, I love adrenaline stuff, but that's just, nope. Sorry, buddy. Fire me. <laughs> Go find somebody else. You have to have verbally confessed Jesus Christ as your Savior. It's not a birthright. Well, I was born into a Christian family. That's not salvation. That's not salvation. The Bible says in Romans 10, 9 and 10, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture saith, whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. For there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek. We all get saved the same way. That's what it's saying. For the same Lord over all is rich unto all that call upon him. Praise the Lord. Man, look at verse 13. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. You have to have enough faith in your heart to call upon him to, to save you. That's what it's saying. The prayer itself is not, it's just a mechanism. Fire trucks in and of themselves do not save people. It's a tool for the fireman to use to go save people. A prayer in and of itself does not save people. It is just a mechanism that we can use to cry out to the Lord so that the person, Jesus Christ, who died for our sins, can save us. It originates from a heart of faith. I'm, I, from, I believe, and I'm calling out to you, I'm confessing that Jesus Christ is the Savior, and I'm trusting him to save me. The second one I would like to look at is, let's go to Acts 2.38. Probably do three today. I've got a list of about eight or nine. We'll just do about three today. So typically my strategy is if, if everybody doesn't listen, then I go really long. That's why I have eight points. But you guys are listening well, so I'll just do three. Sound good? Acts 2 and 38. Now this can be kind of a confusing thing. Because oftentimes in the New Testament, not every time, but occasionally, it talks about trusting Christ or calling on his name or believing on the Lord Jesus Christ and being baptized in the same thing. This is one of the evidences of salvation. That if you are willing to call on him for salvation, but you absolutely will not ever follow him and believe and, and, and follow him in baptism, how can you say that you're really accepting him? Well, we'll look at some verses here. Oh, I feel a little bit of like, <gasps> are you saying you have to be baptized to go to heaven? That's not what I'm saying. You guys know I'm not saying that. We'll make this clear. But it's interesting how many times the Bible talks about believing on the Lord Jesus Christ and being baptized together. Look at Acts 2. Look at verse number 37. Now, when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart. They were convicted. They were convinced. 
They were, they were, they were convinced that what Peter was preaching to them about Jesus Christ was true. They realized that they were guilty in rejecting Jesus and putting him on the cross. Now, when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart and said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? You see that humility there? What shall we do? What must I do to be saved? The Bible records in, in Acts 16 is another way. That attitude, that spirit. Verse 38, then Peter said unto them, repent. Change your mind. Allow the message of God's word to change your mind that will change your heart so that you turn and fully accept Jesus Christ. Repent is what it says. Is an act of faith. Now, people want to make this out and do a work. And that's not what the Bible teaches about repentance. Repentance is an act of the Holy Spirit. Repentance is an act of the Holy Spirit. We can stop God's word from working in our heart so that it doesn't change us. Or we can allow God's word and the message to change us so that we're thoroughly convinced so that then I turn and I change. And I'm not bringing this up to be controversial, but you guys remember during all the whole COVID thing. How long did it take for you to be thoroughly convinced that this was actually happening? This is an illustration. Some people were convinced right away. Some people were convinced before it actually happened, before it finally came here and the rules came down. But some of us are watching the TV like, seriously? Seriously? I have to wear a mask? Where do you buy a mask? You guys remember that? But slowly over the, over time, we were convinced and we're like, okay, to varying degrees. When he is preaching Jesus Christ here, they're listening, they're listening. He goes through the whole sermon. We're not going to go through the whole sermon. And then finally they're like, what do we do? He is the Son of God. He did die for our sins. What do we do? He says, repent. Turn from the attitude that we read in Romans 10 and verse 1 through 3, where you are thinking that it is my righteousness that saves me, Turn from trusting in yourselves. Turn away from the mindset of rejecting Jesus. Completely turn to Jesus Christ and accept him wholly. He says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. Now, repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ was the one that they had rejected. Is that true? This was the same crew... 40 days before that had visibly seen Jesus Christ, cried out, crucify him, crucify him. Am I telling the truth right now? They had to fully accept him. And to fully accept him, they have to believe on him for their salvation. The Bible says, whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. That's why it's included here in the baptism part. It, it always strikes me as strange when someone says, I'm a true believer of Jesus, but I refuse to ever get baptized. You say, oh, that doesn't happen. Pastor Eagles, does that happen? It happens. It happens. How can you say that Jesus Christ forgave you of all of your sin? How can we say, whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed, meaning if that saving faith is in your heart. How can you say that you will not publicly identify with him? 
How is it possible? Uh, when I married April, it was public. We invited everybody we knew. Some weddings are so small, some weddings are large. There would be something wrong with the relationship if, for some reason, we had gotten married secretly. I refused to wear a wedding band. I still acted as if I was single. I was still, I, I, I would go out with dates with other single girls. If nobody ever asked me, are you married? No, I'm not married. But secretly, I'd actually been. Now, listen, how come it makes sense when we talk about a relationship and a marriage, but it doesn't seem to, it makes complete sense when we're talking about it in salvation too. You Look, we've either embraced him, accepted him, or we haven't. Look at a few more verses. Acts 2.41. Then they that gladly received his word were baptized. They had, listen, they had publicly rejected him. Right? Crucify him, crucify him. Away with such a man from the earth. Is that true? And now they were publicly saying, I have believed on this Jesus Christ. I am fully committing myself to him. He is the Messiah. He is the Christ, the New Testament verbiage. And I am publicly identifying with him. That's what it's saying. They that gladly received his word were baptized. Because they were saved, they got baptized. Let me say that again. Because they had accepted Jesus Christ as their savior, they were willing to be baptized. Okay, now I'm going to lead you through and, and explain to you about salvation, explain to you how much Jesus loves you, explain to you how you're a sinner, explain to you how without Jesus Christ you're going to die and go to hell, explain to you all of this and how you just need to call on his name and that person sincerely seems to call on the Lord Jesus Christ. And you say, now about baptism. Oh no, I'm not doing that. What part did you miss? Did Jesus publicly give himself for us? Feeling a little pushback right now. That's okay. This is an evidence of salvation here. It absolutely 100% is. When I was, when I was a 16 year old boy, almost 17, I was so convicted that I was, I, I was so confused and then I was convicted. Am I saved or am I lost? And, and I remember praying to Jesus, please show me if I'm saved or if I'm lost. A couple of weeks later, a preacher got up and said the very words I needed to hear. You're not a good enough person to go to heaven. You can't be baptized to go to heaven. I agreed with all that. Then he said, you can't say a prayer good enough to take you to heaven because a prayer didn't die for you. A person died for you. And in my heart, the Holy Spirit, Jesus said, he said, that's what you've been trusting is a prayer. Is a prayer. Anytime somebody had... Ask me, how do you know for sure going to heaven? Well, I remember saying a prayer when I was little. Some people say, I remember when I was baptized. That doesn't take us to heaven either. It's a person that saves us, my friends. And when you accept that person, you are willing to publicly follow him in believer's baptism. I remember, though, the whole time when I was struggling on whether or not I was saved, I remember thinking, if I get saved again, I'm going to have to get baptized again. Saved again, right? You only get saved once, genuinely. 
I'm going to have to get baptized again. I kept on thinking about that. Like that was this huge deal. Listen, don't go to hell because you're scared to get baptized. Don't reject Jesus because you're not willing to publicly identify with him. Give yourself fully to him. Give yourself fully to him. It's so worth it. Is it worth it, church? It's so worth it. What a savior. What a God. Acts 8, 35. We'll look at a few more verses and then we'll go on to the next one, the last one. Acts 8, 35. We use this one oftentimes when we're teaching somebody about salvation and teaching them about baptism because it's so clear in this passage. Acts 8.35, then Philip opened his mouth and began at the same scripture and preached unto him Jesus. And as they went on their way, they came unto a certain water. And the eunuch said, see, here is water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? And Philip said, if thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. You have to confess him. You have to accept the Lord Jesus Christ from your heart. With all your heart, then you may be baptized. Here's a guy asking to be baptized. And sometimes we'll run into this occasionally. Pastor, I want to come to your church and get baptized. Why? Well, why didn't you just, I can't believe you should just. We get, but he gets bent out of shape all the time. You can only get baptized if you've trusted the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior. Why would you walk around with a wedding ring on if you're not married? Why? He commanded the chariot to stand still, and they went down both into the water, both Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized them. When they were come up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord caught away Philip, that the eunuch saw him no more, and he went on his way rejoicing. Here's another one. Mark 16. This helps us understand in Matthew 28, when we see the Great Commission, when it says, go into all the world and to give the gospel to every creature. But in Mark 28, specifically, it says, go ye therefore and teach all nations. Go ye therefore and teach all nations. That means to go into every nation and make disciples. Making disciples of every nation. Making followers of every nation. When someone accepts the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior, they are saying, you are my God, you died for me, and yes, I am willing to follow you. That growth path may take some time for them to fully grow but for it to have never been there, they have no interest whatsoever in following Jesus. How can that person say they're truly born again? How can that person say that they're genuinely saved? Mark 16. Verse 15 says, And he said unto them, Who's speaking here? Say it out loud. Jesus is speaking. He's giving us the Great Commission. Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth. Uh-oh. 
and is baptized shall be saved. Did Jesus get it wrong? No, of course he didn't get it wrong. But notice what he says later. He explains further. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. Willingness to be baptized is evidence of salvation. Willingness to be baptized is evidence of salvation. No one in Scripture genuinely got saved who was not willing, refused to be absolutely no, never. No one in Scripture ever got saved who refused to be baptized. I'll accept Jesus, but I refuse to get baptized. Just it just wasn't it wasn't it just there's no record of that. Last one and we're done. Uh, Romans eight sixteen. Romans eight sixteen. We'll dig into this the next time in more detail. Romans 8, verse 15 and 16, it says this, For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry. Notice the received. It means if you've been saved, this is the spirit that you have received. The spirit of adoption. What's the spirit of adoption? It means we cry, Abba, Father. We have a new relationship with God. And we cry, Abba, Father. Verse 16, the spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are, that we are the children of God. He is the one that gives us the assurance. Over and over and over and over again in scripture, we'll take the time next time to go through many more scriptures because this is a series. It's not me making myself believe. It's me clinging to Christ and Christ himself comforting me. His Holy Spirit that dwells inside of me says, you are my child. You are my child. You do belong to me. When I sing praises with God's people at church, the Spirit bears witness with my spirit that I am a child of God. When I pray, in church, or I hear another believer pray. The Spirit bears witness with my spirit that I am a child of God. When I hear somebody preach and teach the Word of God, there's something inside that says, that's good. I am a child of God, and that is for me. That is Jesus speaking to me. Unbelievers don't have that. Unbelievers don't have that. That's why they turn to their religion and say, no, I'm this religion. That's their comfort. Miserable comfort, dead comfort. It has no life to it. But the Spirit gives us life. It gives us assurance. It is God himself who gives us the assurance that we are his children. Many of us in here have kiddos. They don't know who they are when, they first, when they're first born and they start growing up. We tell them, you're my son. You're my daughter. I love you. This is your name. You're not born knowing your name. Hey, Dad, give me that birth certificate. Let me see what my name is. Is that how it works? No, of course not. 
And it is Jesus Christ himself that comes to us as the great shepherd of our souls. He comes to us, as the song says, and comforts us. Since you belong to me, you belong to me. Everybody bow your heads, please, and close your eyes.